This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Jonathan Pritchard, a mentalist to Fortune 500 companies and author of Think Like a Mind Reader on Leveraging the Power of Persuasion Through Understanding How People's Minds Process Information. Okay, thank you for joining me on Spark today, Jonathan. You are super welcome. I'm glad to have the opportunity to chat. What is a mentalist versus a magician? For me, the the best way I've learned to explain it is a magician does tricks with objects like coins and tigers and, and stuff. And a mentalist does tricks with information and details. They're both based off trickery, but it's just kind of a, a different flavor. Do you have to be naturally intuitive to become a mentalist? I don't think so. It's kind of one of those things of it's just like any other kind of skill. When you first start, you're going to be awful at it. It's going to feel uncomfortable, and there's not a lot of bandwidth you have to to talk about the intuition or the feel of it, kind of like a musician would with music. It's It's just that intuition comes along as you get more and more skillful at doing the, the tricky stuff. So you do become highly intuitive over time then? It's kind of one of those things of if you've been in the same situation a thousand times, you've seen the five most likely ways that somebody is likely to respond, and you've got a thousand times more experience than that person. It looks like you're supremely intuitive to that other person because you can see how their reaction is playing out and then adjust accordingly. But it's not a magical process or anything uh, in, in terms of being able to see how the percentages play out of likely responses, if that makes sense. So you're really good at statistics. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things because every performance is another data set of real life feedback from real life humans about their natural responses, which to me is way more valuable than getting a focus group of 10 people and then asking them, tell me what color is this smell to you? Like <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't make nearly as much sense. So you never get it wrong though, right? It's kind of one of those things of as a professional, I'm being paid to be good at my job. And when you have the rock-solid foundation of, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really confident that this is going to go very smoothly, then you've got the freedom and the availability to take some creative, artistic chances that may or may not work. If it works, then it looks like an absolute miracle and if it doesn't work, then everybody goes, well, nobody's going to fail on purpose. So that proves that he's the real deal. So it's a it's a win-win situation. But if it were just guessing the whole time, 
then I don't think I would be right enough to be able to call myself a professional. So that's why in a magic trick, the tiger's going to show up. In a mentalism trick, I'm going to know the details because it's just designed that way. So I've read that the way you do that is you have the ability to manipulate the audience's memory, influence their thoughts through subtle technique of psychological suggestion. How do you do this? Mm -hmm. Part of it is understanding that the human mind feels a lot more powerful than it actually is in certain ways, because a, a way to think about it is our brains work off of something like, what, 12, 15 watts, which is about the same amount of electricity that runs a light bulb in a refrigerator. Like, that's it. That's the whole thing. So <laughs> so the brain has had to come up with, with some shortcuts and just using assumptions about how the world works so that you don't have to expend as much energy testing every single thing people aren't going to be able to actively recall every single detail of everything that's happened for the past 10 minutes. The unimportant details, you make them more interesting and the important details that they would need to actually solve the mystery, make them very boring that your mind won't even attend to it in the first place. So it's from the design level of understanding what would be interesting to your audience and then making the secret tricky details just so uninteresting that your brain won't even catalog it as having happened in the first place. So that at the end, when you're trying to replay what happened, you're just recalling the most interesting details, which actually have nothing to do with how the trick actually worked it's kind of impossible for you to be able to reconstruct what all happened because your mind didn't even pay attention to it in the first place. So you'd have to imagine it whole cloth on the back end. It's just your mind is lazy and we work with it. <laughs> so you're creating the shortcuts and then you're suggesting to them what they actually remember. Right. Your brain already has those shortcuts and strategies in place due to thousands and thousands of years of evolution and surviving in, in nature, right? So those hiccups are already there, and it's just being aware of them and then developing a strategy that makes use of them. That's the real genius of, of the field of magic. So does that mean that you can always make people believe they're seeing someone or something else because you're basically having them refocus on what you want them to focus on. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's why it's not a cultural thing. It's not a, this only applies to Americans or anything like that. This is fundamental human cognitive processes, which is why magic works all over the world. Doesn't matter where you grew up. When that tiger shows up in that box, that's impressive. Where, where'd that come from? I thought it was empty. So these are fundamental cognitive processes that apply to every single person alive and has ever been alive. That's why we've had magic tricks since before written history. 
So that's that's why this isn't just a this week's interesting tip, trick, or hack. This is timeless application of fundamental human nature. How do you figure out what someone has written down without seeing it? Well, that requires uh, initiation into the secret society of mind reading. No. (laughs) (laughs) You take uh, the dark courses. Exactly, exactly. But that's that's why I always joke around and say I'm the professor of dark arts at Mind Reader University. So that's kind of my, my business title. But basically, it, it really is. I try to be as honest a liar as I can be. And that means that I will tell you that there are tricks, there are ways of doing that. I don't claim to be genuinely psychic or be able to actually read minds. But man, I can come up with some very compelling demonstrations that make it look like the only explanation would be that I'm psychic. I appreciate your honesty on this. <laughs> I try. I try. From what I understand, a mentalist can make highly probable predictions by reading subtle nonverbal behaviors. How do you read and predict through nonverbal behaviors? This is kind of one of my favorite, favorite rabbit holes because it kind of goes back to the statistics world, which is that being able to read body language and and micromuscular reactions and, and anything like that, it's pretty much founded on a belief or an assumption that there are universal physical displays of internal emotions and experiences, and there aren't any. There are no universal displays of happiness or sadness it's culturally contextual. So there could be somebody who's crying who's actually happy. There could be somebody who's laughing who's actually sad, right? If you understand the framework of that person's experience, you have enough pre-existing interaction and exposure to what their normal baseline is you could then get really good at being able to understand their behavior as it's different from their normal behavior and identify differences that way. But for anybody to claim that they can just look at a stranger and tell you exactly how that stranger is feeling uh, is, is about as real as me being able to read minds. Being able to do that comes from having the same experience over and over and over again, and then seeing the most common ways that people react to it. And then you've got that body of knowledge to draw on for a new person, but you still have that pre-existing baseline of a thousand times being in this experience to measure this individual's behavior against. So if there's anybody who ever says, oh, if you look up and to the left, and that means that you're remembering, but coming up with creation, so you're going to be lying to me, that's that's about as much hooey as I can read your mind by communing with the spirits of the dead. It's uh, highly, highly unlikely. How does the power of persuasion work in the art of a mentalist? I make a living being in front of large audiences 
and then getting perfect strangers to feel comfortable enough to come join me on stage in front of a thousand people and not only not be scared, but actually have fun and enjoy it and have enough presence of mind to follow instructions, follow along, do what needs doing in order to make them look like a million bucks. Like that requires some next level communication and influence skills. So a lot of it is to demonstrate from the first second that I'm on stage that I'm actually happy to be there and that I'm pleasant to be around, that I'm not surly, that, that I'm not going to make fun of them or belittle them. And then everything that I say, everything that I do has to communicate that and be in alignment with that, that belief. So then when I say, Oh, I would love to have somebody's help up here on stage they know that I'm not going to make fun of them or go back on my word there. So trust is really at the heart of all influence. So if that person doesn't trust you, they're not going to be open to seeing things your way or understanding why it would be in their best interests to, to follow along with your suggestions in the first place, right? So trust is built from good communication skills and it's maintained through an alignment of stated goals and actual goals as evidenced through your behavior. So you have to say you're going to be awesome, then you actually have to be awesome, and then people are going to trust you to be awesome in the future. And you can then use that connection to help influence somebody else's decisions because they think, man, I want to be awesome. This looks like a great time. Yeah. I'll, I'll follow along and, and do whatever you're asking me to do because I can trust that it's going to be a fun experience. Just like in real life. Just like in real life. Exactly. If one wanted to acquire abilities of a mentalist, how would one do this? Exactly the same way that I have, which is I got a beginner magic book and every single beginner's magic book has here are some card tricks. Here are some coin tricks. Here's some mind reading tricks. Here's some rope tricks. And first layer is you learn how the trick works, but then that's not enough for you to be able to make the trick be amazing because you got to put all the pieces together. You got to say the right thing. You got to do the right thing. And you got to do both of those at the right time and do them in the right way. Only once all of those elements are together, then you'll have the magic effect. And once you learn to create a magic effect instead of just an interesting puzzle, then you'll have enough experience to appreciate how important your communication skills, how good they've got to be in order for any magic trick to happen in the first place you start to think about how and why these tricks are possible in the first place. And that gives you the picture into somebody's mind in a general sense beyond just this trick and how this trick works. Interesting. So after you learn the tricks, 
you need to build that rapport through communication. And that's the part where you have to be really smooth. You have to really connect with your audience. And you have to be able to persuade them that they can trust you. Exactly. Because if I focused just solely on the tricks, or I used the tricks to make me look smarter, funnier, or whatever, like if I used it to look better than other people, well, that's entertaining to a certain point, but isn't really a good foundation to create a long, long-lasting relationship, right? <laughs> so yes. ultimately, the tricks should just be a vehicle or a context for you to showcase how much you care about your audience to showcase what amazing things they can do, make them the star of the show by choosing tricks and material that sets them up for success. And now you've got an experience that goes way beyond being an interesting puzzle, but is actually a, a potential for creating long lasting relationships with perfect strangers. To me, that is the real magic and potential of mentalism that goes way beyond using it to make yourself look more interesting. It's just a phenomenal tool to help you connect with other people. And that's the proper way to make use of the tricks. And it is powerful because people do still feel connected after the performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had people like it happened to me once where I had somebody come up to me about a year after we had met for three minutes, four states away, and ask me, hey, were you at this restaurant in Orlando last year? I was like, yeah, that was me. And they had a playing card that they had me sign. It was still in her purse. And this was in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. I was at a restaurant and somebody recognized me from their vacation to Disney. They remembered me, not Disney, <laughs> right? Like the, they were able to pick me out of that, that room a year later in a completely different environment. That's how strong these memories and emotions are for people who are experiencing them. You have written that it is not a gift or something I was born with. It is a skill developed over decades of effort to become top 1% in the world at it. How long would you say it took you to become this level of excellence in what you do? Ooh, man, that's a, that's a really sharp question. Um, one, one of my mentors who I never got to meet, but I read everything he wrote, um, he, he said that any five-year-old child can do anything you've seen me do as long as they have 25 years worth of practice. And I would have to agree with them. This is something that I've been interested in almost my whole life since I was about six years old. In order to get to the, the level of professionalism and expertise, a couple decades, you just stick with it. You keep working at it. And eventually you'll, you'll be better than you were yesterday. And that's, that's all you can hope for sounds like it's layers of skills that you're really building upon. And it's not something that you can develop overnight. Exactly. Because there are some tricks 
in method terms that I could teach you how to do. And you could, you could do the trick in the next 30 minutes, but it would take you at least a week or two of constant practice to turn it from a trick into a really, really compelling puzzle. Like, Oh, that's really puzzling. How in the world did you do that? And then, you know, maybe six months for you to turn that into an, a miracle with no earthly explanation. And that all comes from your performing, your script, your timing, your ability to create rapport with the audience member. It's everything around the method that supports the experience that's important. And at a certain time, you, you learn to appreciate the secrets for the secrets that they are but you understand that they're not the most valuable part of the whole experience. The valuable part of the experience is the connection you make with your audience, with the participant, with the volunteer and the, the people in your life. So to me, that's the real magic of being a magician, of being a mentalist is having this phenomenal skill of building connections with strangers that nobody else in the world can do. That takes time, that takes effort, but it's the most rewarding thing I've, I've ever found. I would imagine that those skills apply to other areas of your life. They really have. And sometimes it's one of those, boy, I can't believe it took me so long to put these two dots together to see how they're connected, because, boy, I'm supposed to be this world-famous expert at this, and it still took me years to realize how it impacted this area. I'm I'm still human. <laughs> but yeah, the the same the same psychology that works on stage works off stage for myself and anybody else that's willing to put in the work. It's learning to op, uh, identify opportunity, have the gumption to ask for it and just develop the skills of learning to see it when it's there and to create it when it's not. How would you say people could apply these skills? into their lives because it sounds like you know just your ability to connect with strangers right that's a really important skill to have is the ability to just connect with anyone so imagine that you can do that anywhere you go right and it's really easy for anybody listening to this conversation to let themselves off the hook and to say well it's easy for jonathan he's just so outgoing Oh, it's easy for Jonathan. He's just such a natural. Not at all the case. Like, I grew up a super shy kid. I would rather go without ketchup than go ask the person at Wendy's for it, right? Like, I would much rather prefer to not see people for weeks on end. It's just that I've learned that that's not a really good way of getting what I want out of, out of life. This doesn't come naturally. That's why I say it's not a gift, because then... Other people could just say, well, I just wasn't born with the gift, and that's why I don't have what I want out of life. So really, it's, it's about finding a mentor who's already doing what it is that you want to be doing, and then figure out what their script is, what their staging is, what their blocking is, all those showbiz terms of what are they saying, what are they doing to get the the response or the outcome that I want. And then you just use their script, use their blocking 
It's just like learning a play. That's all it is. And if you've got a good enough mentor who can teach you all of that stuff, they'll show you what you need to do to get what it is that you want that they've already gotten. There, there's a pattern for it. There's a recipe. Go use their recipe. And then once you can reliably replicate those results, then you can start building your own recipe that fits you specific to your flavor of, of success that you want. So no, it, success isn't a, a gift or just a, a thing that you're born with. It's strategies that you can learn and get better at. Like su- success is a skill. Magic is a skill. Mentalism is a skill. Being alive is a skill. It's something that you learn along the way. It sounds like you have to find the right mentor first. Right. And a big part of that is really being honest and truthful with yourself about what it is you want out of life. Because until you figure that out, no mentor is going to be any better than the other because you haven't defined what it is that you want. So how could you see who's good at doing the thing that you want because you haven't even answered that question. So you're not off the hook just because you say, well, I haven't found the right mentor yet. Well, it's because you haven't figured out what you want first. That's why that saying, when the student is ready, the master appears to me is it's not magic. That's just how the world works. That is a really good point. So besides being a mentalist, you help people to understand how to leverage the power of their imagination to solve difficult issues and develop powerful strategy based on applied psychology. Can you first explain the role of imagination and then how you then teach people to apply it to solve issues or problems? Yeah. So for me, one of the most common things that I hear after a mind reading show that I do or a keynote presentation or any kind of sales training or anything like that where where I could do a, a mentalism demonstration. People come up to me and they go, man, I can't even imagine doing what you do. And, and they mean that in two ways, which is, well, I can't possibly figure out the trick that you just pulled. But secondly, it's I can't even imagine living a life that you live because you're not going to a cubicle farm. You're not punching in the clock and then having to put in a lot of physical effort and do back breaking work. Like, like my dad did worked in factories my whole childhood, right? Many people can't even imagine a different trajectory for their life than the one that they're currently on. And if you can't even imagine a different possibility, well, then you have a 0% chance of doing anything different. If you want to do something different, you first have to be able to imagine what that different thing that you want actually looks like. So then there's a huge difference between fantasy, which is using the power of your mind to dream up things that could never happen, versus imagination, which is working with what you have to create something that doesn't exist yet, but is entirely possible. And that world 
is a lot bigger than your current level of imagination will allow you to believe is possible. The world of, of imagination is a lot bigger than you currently think it can be because you don't understand how imagination works and how your mind works and what it's truly capable of, of doing. Once you understand how the system works, how your mind works, how you interact with reality, then you can develop more effective strategies for making it do what you want it to do. And one of the easiest ways of, of showing people that in, is to ask them how they would learn to say the alphabet backwards. And most people's strategy would say, I'd write it down and then read it backwards and, and just do that over and over and over again. And it'd probably take me a day, but I could do it. And then I teach them how to do it in about three minutes using a combination of narrative, storytelling, visuals, interesting pictures, comedy, and all the ways that your mind is interested in engaging with reality. Then in three minutes, a perfect stranger can say the alphabet backwards perfectly. It's one of the, the coolest things that I see happen all the time. And before that, there's no way that they could possibly imagine that they would be able to say the alphabet backwards in under five minutes. They wouldn't even allow themselves to entertain the possibility. Then when I say it's possible, well, now I could at least believe, I could imagine it being real, but I have no way of making it real. Then I show them the strategy and then they can do it. They can prove to themselves that their imagination wasn't allowing them to change their life. So again, it's, it's being able to find the mentor who can identify where your imagination is lacking or holding you back due to fundamental beliefs you have about what you're capable of doing and then challenging those in, in productive ways to show you through your own actions how you can achieve bigger things than you thought was possible. So do you think you can define purpose through imagination? For me, purpose and meaning go together pretty tightly. And, and meaning is only created. It's never found anywhere. I've never tripped over meaning. I've never stumbled over purpose, right? Like I didn't open a drawer I forgot about and then go, oh, here's my purpose in life. I was wondering where I put that. You're never going to find purpose outside. Purpose solely comes from what are you going to create in the world, given the short amount of time that you've got to be alive and the energy that you have every day, how are you going to spend that to create something that didn't exist before you were born. That's it. That's the only thing that, that you can create. You can make things that nobody else in the universe will ever make unless you do it. And that to me is my purpose is to, to help more people create more in their time on, on the planet earth. How did you come to this purpose though? A lot of it is just going in the wrong direction enough <laughs> 
right? Of, oh, I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to do this. And realizing that every single thing that I've ever done to try to make myself be better, cooler, uh, more whatever, it, it just doesn't work. But the more I focus on how I can help other people and help them create better life that fits them better, the more I focus on being of service to others, the better my life gets. And I'm all about positive reinforcement. And that seems to be the most powerful positive reinforcer in my life. So, hey, let me uh, keep doing what works. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Yes, it works. How do our values determine how we process information? And why is this important in the process of predicting outcome? Your brain, the part of the hiccups is that if you were fully aware of every single thing that you could possibly be aware of, then you would just be frozen in place because it would just be so overwhelming. So you have to learn to ignore some things and the things that make it through are the things that are most valuable to you. To put it in surviving nature terms, that rustle in the grass is a valuable thing because it might sound like a predator coming to eat you. So it's really valuable to you to pay attention to that and ignore things that aren't going to kill you, <laughs> right? right. So, so you learn to identify what things are valuable and what things aren't, and then your mind gets really good at filtering out the things that you don't value. So it's kind of the same thing of in a kind of present day situation where cocktail parties when people actually still gathered together, where you could be in, in a crowded room that was really loud and it's really tough to hear the person just right next to you who's trying to talk to you about real estate or whatever. And then somebody from across the room says your name and then you hear it perfectly. Like, huh, what? Yeah. Your name is super valuable to you and you can pick it out from the middle of a lot of unimportant information. So the things that are valuable to you are going to be the things that you look for. And isn't that weird? Those are the things you're going to find. As long as you still value the same things, you're going to find the same things. And only when you change what's valuable to you, then you'll find the difference between those. And in another instance is buying a car. You bought a new car. And now that's valuable to you because you literally just invested in it. And suddenly they're everywhere on the street. There's one. Oh, there's another one. I saw five today. Well, there's been five today every day for the past six weeks, but you didn't notice them because it held no value to you. So your mind filtered it out. But now that it's valuable to you, you're going to notice it. Opportunities, connections, relationships, they're all right there. They're all right in front of you. But if you don't value them, you don't know how to recognize them, and you're going to miss them even though they're right there in front of you. The key is to then recognize what is of value to you and to others around you. 
Exactly. Exactly. Is to really, really take stock of your values and to understand that everything you're finding in the world is because that's what you value about it. And that can be a really, really tough thing for people to accept because like, the world is this, the world is that, it's awful this way. And it can be as awesome in the other direction at exactly the same time, but you've learned to value these things over others. So of course that's why you're finding them. So it, it really does require a fundamental shift in values if, if you want to make a, a permanent change. You also have talked about that it's important that we learn how what other people value or are likely to think and be able to apply this skill. Can you talk about this? Yeah. So uh, a lot of it is that a lot of people think that there's a big difference between your mind and your body. Right? Like I, my mind has my body. My mind is in possession of my body. But really, there, there is no difference between the two. Your mind is your whole body in motion. That, that's really it. And, and it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to ever behave in ways that are out of alignment with your fundamental values. So if you pay attention to what people do, not what they say, not what they tell you, not what they tell the world, but if you just look at what they choose to do with their time, they will show you what's valuable to them. So through their behavior, you can then kind of backtrack what their value system is and what they think is the most important thing about being alive. And that's your way in to understanding their value system and understanding what they believe about reality. Interesting. And then you can respond based on their values of what's important and what's not. Exactly. Because if you're a really skillful communicator, you can then frame your perspective in terms of their values that they already know and understand in order to make that connection. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's amazing because it, it, applies and pays off in sales, in negotiation, in romantic dating, in family relationships, in your own personal relationships with your own problems and opportunities and resources and friends and your attitude. Like there's no getting away from this stuff. This, this is fundamental to all humans and it's happening all day, every day, every minute you've been on this planet like that's <laughs> To me, that's, uh, that's about as powerful as powerful gets. So it's not really about listening to yourself then. It's about watching yourself and your behaviors. And, and then basically backtracking and say, you don't really believe this because you're doing something else. So your values are really not what you think they are. They're actually more tied to if you look at how you're behaving. Because a lot of people will say, oh, I value this not, but they'll do the opposite, right? So right. you really have right. to really think about your behavior in order to be able to recognize what's valuable to you rather than the self-talk where you tell yourself what's valuable to you. Exactly. You nailed it. Because first, you have to be aware, 
most people aren't even aware of how all this stuff works. Second, you can be aware of it and kind of go, okay, this, this stuff is happening, but that doesn't mean you understand it. That doesn't mean you can predict or model that behavior, right? So then once you understand it and you can predict future behaviors and, and connect with people, that still doesn't mean that you're free from the process in yourself. So awareness, understanding, then liberation and freedom from that internal conflict of saying one thing and doing another, believing one thing about yourself, but actually behaving in a completely different way and the inherent conflict between those two. So kind of that, that peace and comfort with yourself comes from a total integration of your stated and actual values being the same thing and not having to lie to yourself, not having to lie to your friends, not having to lie to your family or anybody else for, for any reason. To me, that's a, that's a good life. Wrapping up, based on your experience as a mentalist and coach, how can people see their limiting beliefs or narratives and turn it around? It's really, really tough to do by yourself. And, and that's why even in this digital age, I am still a huge proponent of, of real human connection, of working with a person, somebody who's competent and skilled at, at helping you understand these things. Because it's kind of like asking a fish to look at itself outside of water. Like it, it's, it's impossible. It's like, no, I'm what water, what are you talking about? And it's because you, your current way of thinking is the product of how you've been living a whole lifetime. And it's really difficult to think outside that body of experience. So you need somebody who hasn't had your background or your lived experience in order to give you another perspective and to identify where those challenges are, where those, where those beliefs are holding you back, and then carefully and with love, pointing your attention to them and then challenging you to recognize them and then working with you to, to dissolve them, right? So, so it takes a, a lot of skill. And the way I think about it is kind of like uh, partner dancing. You could, you could watch a, a lot of YouTube videos on how to tango. You could tell me that it's a seven count dance with the thing or whatever, right? You could, you could give me all the technical details, but that still doesn't mean that you're a great tango dancer. You need to work with another person in order to feel the energy and to understand your own frame, your own timing, your own sense of rhythm you're going to, to improve so much faster if you work with uh, a good partner than you would trying to do it yourself. Thank you for these insights, and thank you for joining me on Spark today, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. As uh, you might be able to tell, I, I get super jazzed talking about this stuff, so I'm, I'm honored to have the opportunity to, to share my thoughts on it.